I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I say God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. guest is Lorraine Van Tool. She's a shamanic eco-psychologist and licensed clinical psychologist. She's the author of Amazon Wisdom Keeper and her new book that we'll be talking about. Actually, we may be talking about all kinds of things, but her new book is Soul Authority, Liberatory Tools to Heal from Oppressive Patterns and Restore Trust in Your Heart Compass. 
So, Lorraine, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much. So, why don't we begin with your childhood around the jungles of Suriname, and then move into your experience in the concrete jungles of Miami. Oh, that sounds wonderful. And as you were referring to that, and I was thinking back about my childhood, I was also thinking about a diagram that I use in Soul Authority. And I thought it would be good to reference this diagram because I can say a lot about my experience, but I would love to also point out these different circles of influence and how my siblings, perhaps, or my parents, cousins, everybody might have had a very different experience in the same Amazon rainforest. Um, I'm from Suriname, my native country. And it's a country right above Brazil that not many people have heard of. It's considered the most tree-covered country in the world. And there were so many different cultures and peoples living there in, I would say, quote-unquote, more preserved ways than also in uh, many areas of the world because of this dense and thick rainforest. There were, for example six maroon tribes, these are descendants of enslaved people living in the forest, able to stay hidden for centuries from their enslavers and from colonizers. And one of my descendants on my maternal side was a slave who was an enslaved person who came here. I don't know if it was a man, woman, both. So even though I don't look black or you wouldn't be able to tell that looking at me. I'm multiracial, multicultural. That has been one of the strongest ties to my ancestral roots. I have also some Chinese ancestry, Portuguese, Dutch, um, Jewish ancestry. So in any event, there's so many different peoples there. They're also after slavery ended, contract workers from India, from Java, Indonesia, and my Chinese Hakka ancestors were merchants and very nomadic people who at that time tested out and, and moved to many different places in the world. So those were my ancestors. There are even more groups of people there. And my parents, my direct parents, studied abroad in Holland before I was born for seven years. My mother was a principal, a teacher, my father, an architect. So they brought some of, you know, very modern Western ideas also back with them to Suriname. So I was influenced by all of these different cultures and ideas, people in Suriname. It's interesting to think of Suriname and the rainforest too as layered. And on the northern coast, it borders the Pacific Ocean. And if you go deeper in, you get closer to Brazil and to the mountains. So most of the people live at the coast. And as you go deeper in, it becomes much more dense, much more mysterious, much more uh, people, you know, really practicing the indigenous ancient ways. So I was very, very drawn as a child to the depths, you know, the mysteries of the rainforest, even though when you're living in the city, 
even like near you in the same street, I mean, you have patches of rainforest if you just go further in, like half an hour in every weekend, we went to Boiti, which is what we called this patch of land that we had about four acres and we planted fruit trees and vegetables there. I was always like drawn to go deeper, but we couldn't go too deep because children couldn't get malaria shots. So I'm not sure if all my cousins were so caught up and so influenced by documentaries, by what was happening when you met or saw how indigenous people live but that I felt a very very strong connection to those ancient spirits to nature spirits to my ancestors so that very much shaped my experience and it's one of the reasons when I learned about Mowgli I immediately connected and felt like I was Mowgli Suriname and Paramaribo the capital are not very modern at all but back then I already associated so many vices, so many ways that were not aligned with our true nature, maybe because of the way my mother especially was running the household, wanting us to be academic in my mind, being more fire and earth-like. I was quite, you know, resistant to some of the regimens and things that she was imposing on us. So in any event, um, that was a lot of my childhood playing in the rainforest, escaping and wanting that peace and wanting to know more, feeling really, really drawn to mysteries I had no words for. And then you went to the concrete jungles of Miami during your adolescence following a military coup in Suriname. Yes, that's correct. So at 10, there was a military coup. Suriname had been independent for five years, um, but there had been strive in terms of who got to rule, who got the most you know, power, sort of battling for all of that. And things got so chaotic, so violent, dangerous, my mother tells us stories where military men would come up to her in her office wanting her to send junior high school kids to the city to protest and to indoctrinate them young. And she would stand up to them and say, no way, no how. The parents did not give permission and that sort of thing. There were boycotts and protests. And my parents and my father also his office was in the city, and there were times where stray bullets, you know, would come through the walls, the windows. So about three years later, they had enough, and they decided to go to Miami, and that was a big shock. I am a shamanic practitioner, and when I did one of my first journeys and going back to that time period, the way it was shown to me, it was like going from a full-color movie to a cartoon that was black and white. At that time, I did not really know how to put my finger on all the losses. Of course, I knew about missing my family, my friends. My I lived in a very close-knit community, too, where most of my mother's siblings were living in the same street. There were lots of kids around all the time. So yeah, I knew that I missed all of that. I missed the rainforest sanctuary, but... In terms of that reality, being so rich, so multicultural, and then almost feeling like you're going to 2D type of life and 
making sense of the world through those lenses with all that loss at that age as an adolescent and dealing with all, you know, all your other adolescent mayhem. That was quite difficult. I I shut down. I even experienced a selective mutism. I in my mind, it was just, you know, telling people I didn't speak English to avoid communicating and it was kind of internally felt like a cold war. I was so angry and so imploded I didn't want to interact with anybody. So it took a few years to come out of that and and getting in trouble and that sort of thing. And uh, my father went ahead to California looking for work. And eventually we joined in my senior year in high school. And that's when I started to turn my life around and studied psychology in college. And I had nobody in my family who had even studied psychology or any lineage of healing. So this was quite, it's quite unique, and I have a large extended family. It's quite unique and feeling very called and drawn to all of that, even as a child having dreams and insights, premonitions about all sorts of things related to healing. And then you write in the book about when you were in grad school that you started losing touch with all of that and that your ancestors and guides actually saved you from getting completely lost in that world and cut off from your earlier inner knowing. Yeah, so I would say that self-healing that happened, even though it was quite turbulent, it involved some bullying and a lot of panic, crying spells as a a sensitive person, as uh, signs of PTSD during even positive experience, like being interviewed for a prestigious scholarship in college. I remember moments like that or needing to talk for a presentation in class, completely losing it. I still was able to tap into what I consider this lifeline to the rainforest, the soul sanctuary, I was able to recreate it inside of myself, not really fully aware of how I did it or what I was doing, but definitely intrigued in psychology too and trying to bridge these ideas. So in graduate school, I was absorbing all that I was learning as like a sponge, really loving all of that. But at some point, In my third year in an ethics class, I was learning about our need or the importance of heavily relying on evidence-based methods and all the research that I had read about so far, even though I was specializing at this point now in multicultural psychology and spiritual methods, there is very little about intuition, shamanic methods. I didn't quite have a word for that, but I knew that I relied very heavily on intuition, on mystics. I had a corner. I worked in an admin office and both my binder and this corner were like plastered full of quotes and sayings. These were all to supplement my education, but I did not realize that at the moment. And so when I learned about, you know, that that it would be irresponsible, that we could potentially harm our clients, I felt something triggered, something got triggered inside of me. And I felt very threatened by this. And of course, it was a strong reaction. And it was more intuitive than logical. I think it was my ancestors 
trying to reach me and I started to hear drumming, kind of like how a song gets stuck in your head. I just kept on hearing repetitive drumming and these were sounds that were very common growing up in Suriname and going to different ceremonies and things. And I also know these were the, the drumming sounds. This is what happened when the Maroons enslaved the descendants and the, the runaway slaves would go back and try to free other slaves from plantations and often burn them. So it felt kind of like that, like to encourage me, to embolden me. And I didn't quite know what was happening. But of course, in hindsight, it all had to do with I could not so easily give up my intuition. This was core to the healing. But I felt very selfish at that point. I felt very indulgent. I felt very irresponsible, even grandiose. So I started to do what I had done when I was a child, keep it all to myself. As a child, I did trust my guides, even though they were wanting me to do things and understand things that would go against what my parents or my mother especially were telling me and teaching me. And I had learned what I call later in my Soul Authority book, this double-mindedness already, because I felt so double-binded. I wanted to connect so deeply, but to connect meant either I would have to force myself to go to sleep and be and belong, or I would be awake and authentic and be rejected. So I figured out something where I could be authentic and still attached and decided they don't need to know everything. And that is, I believe, a very hard call for a young child to, you know, to decide to do. But that's what my guides told me. And some of my imaginary childhood friends like Anne Frank, like that's what she did. So I already felt like a book was being birthed inside of me. And, and so anyway, in, in graduate school, I ended up sort of doing that same thing. Like the authority figures wanted me to practice in this particular way. I could quit that school and could pursue shamanic healing or some other approach where that was totally okay. I mean, right next to us was even the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology. Right now it's called Sophia University, I believe. But in any event, my guides were saying that is also not the answer. You are to do this double-mindedness. You are to practice what you believe your guides are wanting you to do and at the same time note why this is making you feel so anxious and so unsure of yourself and so threatened in these environments and that's what the book needs to be about which is how the in my mind as a child the book started I was going to do that and tell the adults and the parents what was going on in children's minds so it was a parallel theme that I was now carrying through in graduate school. Could you tell us more about the ancestors and guides that were communicating with you and, and how you were receiving that communication and, and how you, you were able to connect with it in terms of trusting that voice? Yeah, so in graduate school, this was the time where I really learned to be more self-aware. All of this was happening quite intuitively my whole life, starting in childhood. And in childhood, how it would happen, you come in contact with many different people, but there was a maroon woman, Elfrida, who is a housekeeper, but often stayed many hours and 
sort of switch over to nanny, even though that was not her official role, but we had a strong connection and I would hang out a lot with her. And so intuitively, I would just feel her aura and she I felt like she would understand me when I would wail and wanting to go into the rainforest and couldn't when my cousins went for example and also when I would go with my parents and they did not properly teach me how to honor for example what Ramama which is the mother of the water right the water spirits and how to honor them and and so I would pick up a lot of things very quickly intuitively from her without really full understanding I'm getting a teaching, right? These things would just happen naturally. Now, when I got to graduate school and all these things were happening, I was scrutinizing myself as we typically do as graduate students where you diagnose yourself with everything and look at the DSM, which is this diagnostic manual that we treat as a Bible. And so many of us tend to think we have this personality disorder and that personality disorder. So, of course, when all this was happening, I thought it was psychotic. I was hearing things. I was also aware enough to know because of my multicultural studies that there could be more going on and the Western psychologist might not totally understand this and could pathologize this. So... I was entertaining all these ideas, but doubting myself a lot, also thinking, well, then I must maybe be grandiose and have a personality disorder. When I became confident, you know, I was into double bind again because a personality disorder is when you think everybody else is wrong and you're right. So no matter where I went, I started, you know, to find my reality would unravel and I could not ground and find my power. So eventually, fortunately, because writing had always been my outlet and where I could ground and and be calm and things would come through almost like a way of channeling this automatic writing. So I felt at that point, I was also a co-leader of a student of color group. And at that time, there was a lot of conflict whether the group should be open and closed just for students of color or if white students who wanted to support these classes could also join. And I felt very torn about keeping it closed, which is what the students of color wanted because I'm also multiracial and from a culture and, and country where there was much more interaction and intermingling and, and so on and so forth. I mean, I, I now understand the different perspective, but at that time I was very torn. So I started to write a letter to the whole school community and started also this whole newsletter idea. And that's where my great-grandmother, the one with African ancestry, came through very loud and clear. And I could very much hear what my ancestors wanted And so in this letter, I'm calling the community together, but I'm also criticizing all of these splits. And it was the start of of so much, including eventually my dissertation. But in the midst of that, there was even a paper I wrote that was entitled The Psychological Lynching of Multiracial People. As you can imagine from that title, there was a lot of anger, there was a lot of rage, there was a lot of of the ancestors telling me, I, I first thought it also the the drumming and this feeling of endangerment. I I thought it had to do about the rainforest and the trees and the forest being endangered because there were rumors 
of different people doing illegal logging and and that sort of thing. But then it became more clear that the endangerment had to do with my own inner rainforest and my own connection to this sacred feminine, to nature. And that that's how the fight and the journey and the initiation began and how things opened up for me. And I continue to, through writing and then later to more formal shamanic journeying and meditations, start to identify that guidance coming through. And it was very clear when that was happening. You wrote that George Floyd's death had a profound effect upon your life and your work, and that it actually revealed something within yourself. Yes, and this was years later when the ancestors propelled me to finish my memoir. So the drumming and all that I'm describing, that happened in 1997 or so. But my whole life, since being a child, I had these fantasies of I'll be writing a book one day to reveal what is happening inside of me and the thoughts and insights children like me have. But, you know, I had my own kids, busy life, graduate school, all that. So it took a while from 1997 to that call. My whole dissertation then followed, similarly related, but not exactly the same. But in any event, the memoir was finally published in 2017. So this is a long time, right? At this time, um, in my practice, I had already worked at different university settings, really steep deeply into diversity work, anti-racism, anti-sexism, with different students there, the faculty, the staff, and had already started to integrate, funnel all of my methods into the soul authority framework. I felt that while all this identity work and looking at these oppressive patterns and understanding them well was really important, it felt even more important to work from a soul perspective and especially understanding the difference between lower self and higher self and making sure that whatever we were doing was aligned with this true nature, with the ultimate point. And it was very easy what I saw, especially when we're traumatized to devolve and allow our ego self or lower self even to kind of run the show and not really heal, you know, and I was one of those people myself. So in any event, you know, I was doing all this work. And then when the pandemic hit, and then the death of George Floyd, it became very clear that my ancestors wanted me to write another book, they sort of came through the same way that they had come through in grad school. And I had planned to write this book, I had by then developed the Soul Authority course, I'd, you know, delineated all the teachings, I'd taught it even a few times. But, you know, you're so used to this first and that first and whatever's pressing right in front of you, you know, gets precedence, priority. So that was the time where I could not do that anymore. They were so loud and so adamant and just really stopped me in my tracks. And it was just very clear that this was the opportunity. And, you know, by that time, we didn't quite really understand even how the pandemic was going to unfold. But it ended up actually being an ideal time for me to draw in into sort of my chrysalis, my cocoon, and 
use that time to actually really hunker down and focus. And actually, the Soul Authority book was written in a few months. I had already done a lot of legwork and very clear about the methods, but it still turned out very different than I thought with a lot of information first about our historical and ancestral patterns and how we disconnected from our true nature over the centuries. So that came first, and then the soul authority methods, how to reconnect and empower ourselves. I'm talking with Lorraine Van Tool. She's a shamanic eco-psychologist and licensed clinical psychologist, and her new book that we're talking about is Soul Authority, Liberatory Tools to Heal from Oppressive Patterns and Restore Trust in your heart compass. I would love for you to talk about the kind of people that you work with and the experience of embodying the kind of contradictory emotions that many of us experience in our culture, like love and rage, connection and alienation and passion and despair in our lives, you know, as what you refer to as highly sensitive, brilliant, deeply caring visionary trailblazers, you know, in the face of the oppressive and soul-crushing structures that still dominate our society. Yeah, so even in, I would say, as an intern at UC Davis, I'm in Northern California, I would, for some reason, just maybe mysteries, you know, of what's happening in the ether, but I would attract these kinds of people, even undergrad students, for example. These are a few that stand out in my mind. One who had called CPS on her mother and, you know, was the one actually wanting to be removed from her mother who was not a good parent. And she was more in tune with her inner guidance and inner parenting and okay with this tremendous loss and rupture in her family, right? These kinds of brave people. Another one that stands out is uh, somebody whose boyfriend had suicided and she was having lots of mystical experiences and connections around his anniversary. Is that like him coming through and contacting her? So I didn't quite know what to make of it back then, but it was definitely making it almost impossible, as I write in my memoir, to ignore this pull, this, this courage I needed to develop and cultivate, to trust my intuition. First, I thought I was being indulgent, and it was just something that I had the impulse, you know, to sort of pursue. But when it was very clear that if I don't trust my intuition and what's happening, I am going to harm my clients, the kinds of clients that find me, it was, you know, the exact double bind, I guess, that I needed to be in and see that and know whatever I was being told that this is harmful is not correct right in front of me. I know this moment I need to trust my intuition and connect to these clients in this particular way. So I started to become more self-aware, looking for ways to make sense of who I am, who they are, and being highly sensitive people empaths, all of that makes the most sense in terms of research, in terms of 
us actually having more mirror neurons. These are parts in our neurological system that gets activated when we feel empathy, when we see others in trouble or pain or whatnot. So we have more of these mirror neurons firing. So I continue to naturally appeal to this clientele and eventually I moved my practice. I worked at UC Davis at the counseling center there for five years, but then moved and opened my own private practice near UC Berkeley. And so got a lot of referrals from that university. And as you may know, the reputation, right, Berkeley, you get quite a lot of activists and rebels who go to that school and and they started to find out about the way I work. So I get them from every possible field you can imagine, but they tend to be the sensitive ones, the misfits, the ones who often think there's something wrong with them, while they actually are the ones who are very loyal to their wholeness and their authenticity. And like me, how I, you know, struggle with being inauthentic at times just to fit in or to advance their careers or do whatever and very aware of these choices or these dilemmas. So the questions in terms of all this complexity, all these feelings that we're having, if we think of now your inner wholeness and society being much more accepting, expansive, we would, you know, especially as sensitive people, more expansive, aware people, we would be able to feel all of our feelings and feel connected and be at peace, right? Not be in any conflict around that. But because many of our social systems, institutions around us, and Dr. Gabor Mate speaks a lot about that, about this conflict between our authenticity and our attachment as, as often being an unfortunate choice. So because of that pressure as social beings to fit in also often for survival reasons belonging is very important not just socially and emotionally but often you know financially practically we experience this conflict where we feel the pressure or the expectation to shut down parts of ourselves that the group has in their shadows that the group we want to belong to has not fully embraced, whether it's identity related, you know, gender or sexual orientation or how to be as a man, woman or person of color or ethnic group or speaking certain language, religion, whatever. Or it could just even just be, you know, your disposition, being more sensitive, being maybe more emotional, being more thoughtful, being deeper, whatever it might be. So that group has not really embraced their vulnerability, these parts of themselves that require tremendous courage to be out about, to come to be open about. And so we feel pressure by these groups to shut these parts down. Now, whenever a key part, a core part is shut down, you're going to experience grief feelings from either denial, shock, going all the way to rage, despair, sadness, and and so on and so forth. If we don't understand that our feelings, our inner struggles are related to unfairly having parts of ourselves shut down, what can happen is 
instead of fully grieving and then if you go through the grief cycle you you're able to retrieve strength and clarity in parts of yourself if you don't fully go through that you end up often over identifying with those intense feelings and maybe even blaming yourself thinking something is wrong with you and shutting down these important feelings and therefore short-circuiting that grief cycle. So that is very common experience, as you can imagine, for people who are not only very sensitive, but also trailblazers, very feisty, very determined to stay connected, but, you know, could really remain stuck in that process because it's a weighty one. It's hard to find a clear path forward where you're not going to experience a lot of setback, pushback, and resistance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's also an Angela Davis quote that I really loved in here where she says, I'm no longer accepting the things I cannot change. I'm changing the things I cannot accept, which is an interesting variation on the old serenity prayer. Yes, yes, because I was doing the opposite and then the George Floyd situation really challenged that, right? Because we can continue to, to remain comfortable in looking at people who are all ready to change, but we need to kind of really push into some places of resistance for us to make progress or the progress that's needed. So a lot of this work involves building or creating a container, strengthening ourselves as a container to contain these kind of very difficult and contradictory and powerful emotions. And in the shamanic tradition, there's this term soul retrieval of retrieving fragmented parts of ourselves. And in this process, like when we don't have the ability to contain all of these powerful emotions, particularly the ones that are bouncing off each other or conflicting with each other, and we we bury some of them or we we reject them or just feel that they're not appropriate, we are in effect fragmenting ourselves and burying like parts of our soul in these kind of subterranean caverns or conditions that make it very difficult for us to retrieve them once we get past the more overt effects of the trauma so that we stay stuck in those places of fragmentation. And so it's a, it's a very interesting way of looking at and understanding these kind of dynamics. Absolutely. And here's where I feel my clinical psychology training and my challenging experiences moving to the U.S. and my own trauma had a larger purpose, which is for me to really understand the Western ego mind and also understand the lower self. And I see the lower self, I define the lower self as the part that is more loyal to our trauma body versus our truth body. So we both have a truth body, and I would call the truth body the parts of ourselves that is online, so to speak, when our soul, when we're in our soul authority, when our higher self, our spiritual self, the part of ourself that wants us to evolve and be aligned with what is in our highest interest and also aligned with the greater good. While the lower self is the ego mind that is more fear-driven, 
that's when our trauma body is more online, our pain body, and we're more self-protective. We think that this self-protection is aligned with our greatest good, but often is more self-sabotaging and constricting. So when I started to learn and be very enthusiastic about teaching my clients how to do shamanic journeying and connect to these guides, what I discovered is that they often did not have enough nuanced understanding of their own ego mind and what got triggered and what part started to take over. So we can have traumatized, as you said, split parts. How I now visualize it is that I help people enter their soul sanctuary, which is this like you're saying, this container, this womb-like space, this chrysalis, this healing space. And as they enter it, become more aware of the trauma bubbles around them, floating around them with soul parts of younger selves, or sometimes could be also past life selves. It could also be ancestral influences that are confusing them. So we are trying to get all these parts to come into the grounded soul sanctuary that is grounded in nature, with nature, with a central sacred tree guide and the natural elements. So before I did that and set that up and helped to resource the adult self and the ego mind, what would happen is that they could connect to amazing guides or could start this process, but then could get triggered also and suddenly shift Sometimes it has happened that a client would want to fire the guides or did not like what the guides had to say. Or sometimes, like you said, these younger selves or wounded selves would hide or, or not be accessible, gets more complex even, right? They are contracted with entities, coping mechanisms that are very attached to the fear-driven ways of protecting Sometimes you would have these younger selves that did not want to be retrieved, like their power, like their situation, like to escape and thought they were in a better situation with whoever, whatever at the time. So that's why I developed the soul sanctuary and have the ego mind first agree and consciously understand what needs to happen to be the soul operator, to orchestrate these retrievals and also become much more self-aware of its own self-sabotaging habits. So we start with a very complex concept actually when they first connect to their all-encompasses central sacred tree that connects as above with so below and helps them to understand the idea of equanimity, which is non-dualism, not polarizing, the idea of cycles and the idea of, you know, out of every death comes a new birth, this composting, this completion of the grief cycle, the understanding of how vulnerability and breaking apart your own rigidness, especially ego hardness, is helpful, is necessary. And this vulnerability would then be like this softening, this water, this nourishment for these new seeds. So the ego mind really needs to first understand this process and work with each of the elements to understand the seasons, the cycles, the what I call the hang-ups when they work with, for example, air, they start seeing where they split off 
their ideas and, and mental concepts of good, bad, of their goals in life. Then we work with fire, where they start to understand boundaries or lack of boundaries, lack of this sort of this inner climate denial and lack of understanding of their own personal warming signals and how they may have denied them. Also through the ancestral lines, that's a big one. Our fire, our own personal immunity, passion, these boundaries have over the generations have been severely hampered with. So most of us don't have very good role modeling or understanding how to keep those intact. And then once that is repaired, though, we can ground more in the body, relax more. And of course, that is compromised without the repairing of the boundaries. But once you're in the body, in earth, then emotions can flow and be regulated without flooding and without the threat of drowning. So this is the soul sanctuary. This is the soul authority framework. And this has helped many of my clients set up their ego mind sort of in the right mindset to then do the soul retrievals with the younger selves where they're much more clear of how to approach even a resistant one or their impulses if they were not want to for example integrate they have a much better understanding and the elements also and their tree guides could reveal almost like a tuning fork backlight what the issues are, what the misalignments are, what the agendas are, the power tripping, the whatever, a conditioning. And so it has been much easier to heal that and realign all those misalignments. So talk about the concept of double-mindedness because you touched on double-bindedness. So continue on about double-mindedness and the importance of that. Yeah, double-mindedness is a very challenging concept for the ego mind, for the logical mind, because it has to do with grasping paradox. And that is related to the ideas of equanimity and non-dualism. These are Buddhist concepts. And the way to think about that paradoxical wisdom, that paradoxical mindset, here are some examples where as we grow older, for example... And, you know, we might experience ourselves becoming more successful, more powerful, more skilled. And when we hit midlife, as I am, you start realizing, or maybe many of us before then, that life is more complicated, that you are to fully embrace and, and surrender to life while in the back of your mind, knowing very well that it's not going to last forever, that this is not a linear trajectory, that at some point you do, you physically do kind of cross a line or a threshold or kind of, as we say, you know, decline, go over the hill. And this is hard for us to understand because we want to retract. We don't want to go full out. If there's no point, so to speak, to it, it's all going to come to an end. But that is the idea of, of paradox and double-mindedness. How can you be equally invested in your physical well-being and simultaneously understand it from a spiritual perspective, from a, a wiser perspective, and even an understanding that as you physically decline, you could spiritually emerge and become wiser, or that the spiritual self can hold these 
two polarities, this what we might see as pain and pleasure, good, bad, life, death, darkness and light or physical, spiritual, they're not polarities in that they're enemies of one another. They're supporting one another and our logical mind has difficulty grasping this. So this double-mindedness has to do with understanding that you have access to this eternal life, this love, this limitlessness, this vastness, and not also completely basking in that and losing touch with what I call the trauma body, with all that is still in need of transformation, of composting, the pain that we are often dealing with, that we often still need to transform. Um, We experience in the body as emotion, as often unsettled emotion, undigested, unprocessed emotion. And many of you may be familiar with the term spiritual bypassing, but if we don't practice the double-mindedness, we can toggle back and forth. We can either be in the despair, see how stuck we are, see how difficult it is to find our path and not maybe want to deal with the resistance and the, the obstacles in front of us. But the opposite solution and being too much in our wholeness, too much in our truth body, too much in our spiritual self is also not the answer. And many sensitives who meditate and have mystical practices can also get stuck there and not acknowledge enough what they're still in pain about, what they're still upset about, might not set enough limits with people or projects or work or even parts of themselves enough and spiritually bypass the emotions and the signals that are telling them that they're not okay, that their needs are not met. So the double-minded stance, which I sometimes also refer to being at least one degree more embodied, more present with your wholeness than your wounding and that you'll be fine, has to do with recognizing this greater truth of who we are, this greater soul, and that our ego mind is a subset. Ego mind tends to be correlated, tends to go hand in hand with the trauma body. Understanding that that is a subset allows us to access the depths of our strength, of our wisdom, and use that to engulf, to alchemize, to transform what is still causing constrictions and misalignment and dis-ease within ourselves. So as long as we're one degree more there, we're able to do that successfully. And some people ask, you know, it's it's kind of like a silly ratio because, you know, technically you could be 100% in your wholeness and 100% in tune with your wounding or with wounding all around you. But our logical mind tends to do this either or thing. And when we're much more in our wholeness, in our blissful, ecstatic sort of self-awareness, it is hard for people often to simultaneously also feel pain, rage, despair, or whatnot. So that's why I say just be there just one degree. But if you're able to manage that paradoxical state of mind, good for you. That That is what we're after. Mm-hmm. So one of the things you mentioned 
that could be a potential cause of trauma in our lives outside of the trauma that we've experienced as children and through our ongoing lives in this world is through our ancestral lines. And lately it's become very fashionable to talk about connecting with our ancestors. And many of us may not feel like we have any ancestors that we can really look to for wisdom and strength. So I would love for you to talk about how you work with people to clear unresolved ancestral issues and trauma, and also the consequences of not doing that work on ourselves, for ourselves in our own lives, and also the impact that that could have on the world around us. I love using metaphors, and as you know, shamanic journey involves a lot of myth, metaphors, archetypes, symbols. So this is a metaphor that I use a lot with my students, with my clients to un help them understand the impact of ancestral trauma and unhealed ancestral trauma. We can think of our bodies or vessels kind of like a car, so to speak. And let's say you inherited a car from your parents and don't question, don't do a lot of maybe examination what other cars really look like or how they function. And you're really not aware that the tires of your car are misaligned and your car keeps pulling to the right, for example, or there's something wrong with the brakes. They don't really brake as quick as they need to. There could be other things problematic with the car and only by knowing how to check what's going on and going under the hood will you know that. Let's say you're now driving the car and you are trying to get to a certain destination and because of the problems with your car, it's much more challenging for you to get there. You're also not as good as a driver, feel as confident because things just don't make sense, right? You have to accommodate and do a lot of adjustments in your steering and, and in your braking and so on and so forth. So this is us often not understanding the body, the vessel we inherited. And also, not necessarily that we inherit roads, but we could also, because of where our parents may have taught us to drive or what we're familiar with, we're only used to certain kinds of roads and feel very uncomfortable driving other kinds of roads. And what can happen if you don't understand that the inherited car has to do with what your parents, grandparents, and so on and so forth had access to, how well they knew how to maintain the car, what resources they had to buy, you know, sort of a more rundown, broken car, and also what roads they had access to. So you can end up expecting a lot from yourself and even beating yourself up and blaming yourself for things that are not your fault and really not seeing yourself correctly. Maybe you are an excellent driver and now going over and beyond and, you know, really doing way too much, spending way too much energy compensating for problems that could be resolved now that you're maybe an adult and have some resources or could check things out with a mechanic or learn from other people this special map or these special roads or you know places that are better suited for you if you don't know that and don't do that you miss out on a lot 
you have this false concept or wrong concept of yourself of being a bad driver because why does it take you so long versus somebody else, you know, doing things much easier, much faster. And you're also wasting a lot of your precious energy on resolving things and dealing with the same problem day in, day out when that issue could be resolved at its root and be done and over with. So I hope that metaphor makes sense in terms of how we in our own bodies, if we don't understand what we are contributing to a certain problem, how well we're dealing with the problem and what is really not our doing, where we can get help to sort of look under the hood and maybe align things in a, in a whole different way that we had no idea was possible, but going to some experts or researching, looking for help, it's the same idea. We could resolve things and be forever done and use our assets, our energy, our resources to continue to go on that path and go to this destination that we've been trying to get to, but just have not been able to because of these other issues. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah. Yeah, I like that metaphor. So I use a lot of metaphors. Now we're going to switch to another metaphor. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, I came up with a metaphor as well. Ah, do you want to share yours? Sure. It's quick, too. I had the image of a world of zombies lurching through the world, possessed or infected by the unresolved traumas of their ancestors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like that because then I can use that for my next metaphor. <laughs> so your soul sanctuary is like a womb, or I see it more as an ecosystem, where you're a microcosm, similar to the earth and the elements that you host that move through you are like wind and warmth from the sun, energy, earth, and water, right? And when we look at the earth, there is this mysterious, harmonious interconnection between these elements. And when we think of a tree, a tree also connects the above and below, meaning sun and earth, and holds in, in its body these two energies, embodies them, so to speak. And we do too, as humans, it's just that we can hop and, and we sometimes think, you know, of ourselves as separate from the earth, but we're just one degree removed from our food sources and plants, which depend entirely on sun and earth, right? So I see the trees as our earliest ancestors. And then there is a whole line of ancestors who came, who were very much living in alignment with these two ancient parents, so to speak. And our ego was not developed enough for us to get confused and think of ourselves as separate and really just stand in the way of that connection. And our minds are very powerful because our bodies are still functioning that way. As much as we try to sabotage it, as, as much as we try it not to be that way, our bodies still override us. Our bodies still have to function, right? Like in terms of the fluids that we take in, that we also excrete, the foods, the breath, our bodies heat. I mean, all over the world, we're just a few degrees off from one another. And the planet in the same way, there's this natural homeostasis, this natural regulation that happens. And for us, we experience pain and disease, 
when there's a problem, when other energies occupy our space. So I call what we have done as we separated or thought of ourselves as separate from this mysterious life, this nature that we are the children of, as an implosion-explosion pattern. And as I said earlier, it all has to do with our anger or healthy protective anger. I see that as a fever, right? Our mind can't stop a fever from happening. It's, I don't want to get more hot, right? I don't want to get hot right now. Your body will have the fever in response to some pathogen, some something invading the body. Well, our anger functions in the same way. We get hot, so to speak. We want to push this out. But emotionally, mentally, psychologically, we have been able to short circuit that to protect ourselves, to not aggravate others. Or we told ourselves that's a bad way to be because we didn't like how others expressed their anger or whatnot. So we messed with these natural processes and don't know anymore how to trust our anger, our boundary setting limits, our inner immunity to push out, to get riled up, right? Like almost like a volcano, to, like to push out what is oppressing us till we get back to a place of peacefulness. We Most of us don't have that spaciousness and that support. So all that is obstructed and what that results or what that causes is that implosion explosion pattern imploded meaning you are not filled up with your energy and now something's off so you feel some sadness some loss you might even do whatever you ended up doing because you were ashamed so now you feel ashamed or you might feel guilty you may have been guilt tripped you might feel now that you're inferior something's wrong with you so on and so forth right all of these imploded feelings now, of course, that is not a healthy state, just like our earth is also being hampered with and tampered with. So there's these imbalances and then an explosion of energy will happen, let's say, because of too much heat in our environment. Now that you have more droughts and imbalances and, you know, in California, for example, you know, it's much easier for a wildfire to take off. So it's the same with us, right? There are imbalances, you have an imploded state. Um, there's not maybe enough vulnerability, wetness, emotion. So now you're easily triggered and you experience that exploded state of anger or irritability or however you might experience it. Sometimes it's workaholism, scapegoating. It, it could be a number of different things. So that is what we inherited from a lot of our ancestors. On top of that, you know, could be more severe kinds of oppression we're talking about like slavery colonialism all these more severe forms of oppression whether your ancestors are a group who inflicted that or who experienced that it's just a matter of history right these are oppressor oppressive patterns that have been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years so when i think of a sanctuary right now the boundary around it is not stable and steady enough to protect your ecosystem, to keep things stable, kind of like a greenhouse, if you think of that stability, where you're able to regulate the climate, temperature, water, and all that. It's, it's kind of out of whack. And other energies, other spirits, souls, in bodies or out of bodies, are similarly sort of out of whack, doing this implosion-explosion thing. And how mystery works, especially amongst humans, 
we kind of like positive negative ions we attract we want to become whole but if you're rigidly negative and somebody positive right you can attract one another even if some of these parts are in the shadow right you might as a negative person think no i'm not attracted to a positive person but you're thinking like maybe i'm more attracted to a person very much like me but there could be parts within you and the other person that are mirror opposites and you're complementing each other in some ways so that is kind of how these energies are floating around us and locking into us and at first it might seem like a good contract like you might be attracted or attracting an entity who similarly doesn't want to be vulnerable or doesn't want to feel whatever feeling but eventually this could lead to problems because you're also not growing and you're maintaining you're sort of solidifying a very stuck pattern that the ancestors dealt with and they're attracted to you often because they see potential in the next generation they see the shadow the light in our shadow and they're hoping by triggering or or putting extra weight on us that we get stronger and heal them as we heal ourselves so in terms of the question or to answer the question what to do I believe our best defense is to harmonize our own ecosystem, to think of your sanctuary with each of the elements and the tree, you aligning with the tree, leaning against the tree, leaning your head against the tree so that the back of the head feels like it's surrendering, the crown of your head feels like it's opening up to guidance from above, your body and your root chakra is also receiving guidance from below and your frontal lobes are not so separated and forward thrusting you're you're much more centered there sort of with this trinity idea and the elements around you are similarly going to move through you and work with you like they work with the tree moving through parts of you that you might be thinking is still but doing a lot of work in terms of air and oxygen and carbon dioxide so you're kind of breathing with the tree and you're understanding circulation you're understanding circulation of water through you through your tree through the whole ecosystem and heat and all of that so as you become more balanced your your ecosystem your soul sanctuary becomes more balanced and your immunity strengthens your vitality the regulation of your water instead of flooding now right it's vigorous it's doing its job it's nourishing you and detoxing you so as you energetically become more robust, grounded, solid, guess what? You're going to have more immunity and being able to ward off these entities, the ancestors and entities out of bodies, but also people who are in bodies. And how our healing then relates to our dharmic path or this path of liberation and helping the collective, that has to do with understanding that Love is an action word. So as you experience and practice your own self-love, you're going to practice boundaries with others. And in setting those boundaries, you're maintaining this balance and harmony, right? So instead of locking in, in in some kind of funky form into the people who you would lock into before karmically, you're now correcting that. And you're activating their shadow parts, their shadow light, their shadow potential. 
and they're going to actually like it. They're going to respect it. They might sometimes also object <laughs> because that's our lower self, but they might also really appreciate being challenged in this way and how you can take it even a step further, especially when you're dealing with people close to you or the ancestral line. We don't want to, of course, do work, healing work with people who don't give us permission. But if you feel like you're being directly impacted by ancestor entities or your direct family members and people around you, the best thing to do is to think of them in their own sanctuary. Of course, you can also teach them about it and tell them about it. So they're ego self is totally on board and cooperating in this process. But let's say they're a bit more difficult, they're not interested in these ideas, or you're talking about an entity who you can, you know, directly maybe talk to, you can talk to the higher self of them and also hold their own soul sanctuary in light. So it's kind of practicing loving kindness, but with more nuance. You're really seeing that central tree, you see them connect to the as above, so below. And each of the elements around them, kind of like a medicine wheel or a compass, a moral compass, so to speak, or heart compass, just in the same way in which you've done it for yourself. So you're wishing them the very best, but in a very precise, specific way. So that is what I would recommend that we do to help heal and positively impact all the undigested ancestral trauma around us and and how that also gets filtered down and becomes often the reason why these patterns get you know repeated and and causes a lot of pain and conflict it, it's often to wake us up and alert us that something needs to be done in a in a deeper way and here we are, like, I believe there is a, a ceiling in on our healing. And this is the way to kind of bust through that ceiling and do some deeper soul healing around the ancestor traumas. That was really beautiful. Thank you. I hope that that was clear and it was helpful. Yeah, that was great. So for people who want to find out more about your work, do you have a website? Yes, um, they can go to the Sacred Healing Well. And in my book, Soul Authority, I started off talking about the diagram and I realized I didn't elaborate more, but there they can download that by itself. If they don't have a copy of the book or if they do and they just want a copy of that diagram, it shows you, uh, us as people, in the sanctuary with that tree and there's a little diagram, just like a quick reference what the tree is connecting to. But then you also have, as the circles of that tree extrapolate, just like there's a lot of wisdom in that, that these expand further out and you start to understand how you are influenced by your direct family environment, your school, the neighborhood, the country you're in, and the work settings, friends, and as well as the planet, what is happening at a certain era, a certain time ancestral influences, planetary events, and so on and so forth. So all these circles of influence are also in that diagram, and it's just a handy little cheat sheet to use in your meditation or when you're learning to work with your soul sanctuary to kind of, you know, sort of test these these different circles and, and maybe land in each and every one and ask, hey, how was this one imbalanced and how do I balance it out and what can you tell me? about this and so on and so forth. So yeah, you can get that by visiting my website, the Sacred Healing Well. 
Well, Lorraine Van Tool, thank you so much. I've enjoyed this conversation so much, and I love your book and your work. Thank you. I so appreciate it. I so appreciate the time and the lovely conversation we've had. And I so hope that your listeners also find this tremendously helpful. I feel like we can continue on for hours. There's so much more we didn't even touch upon in the book. So I hope they each grab a copy. I did the audio version and uh, do some meditations in the audio version. And on my website, there are different things. I offer different courses, mini courses, sometimes longer courses. It changes from time to time. So they can just swing by and find whatever I'm doing at the time. That sounds great. I'll be in touch and maybe we can do another conversation at some point to talk about some of the other things in the book. Wonderful. Okay. Thank you so much. That was Lorraine Van Tool. She's a shamanic eco-psychologist and licensed clinical psychologist and the author of Amazon Wisdom Keeper. And her new book that we've been talking about is Soul Authority, Liberatory Tools to Heal from Oppressive Patterns and Restore Trust in Your Heart Compass.
And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.